Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking through the Marvel Universe over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. It is another Magic Monday here on X, and I couldn't be more excited because we have some beginnings, some endings, and something totally different. We're going to be taking a look at Strange Number 1, the debut issue of the new Sorcerer Supreme in her amazing new capacity as such, and then we're going to take a look at the final issue of the miniseries that kicks off the incredible Echoes time as Phoenix here in the Marvel Universe. But before we can get into that, I want to talk about a miniseries that I've kind of glimpsed at through the show, and I thought it was about time that I do this book the justice it deserved. So we're here to talk about Electra Black, White, and Blood number one, and I couldn't be more excited to have two people who I know are ready to talk this title with me here to do so. Hey, it's TK, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Unlike Electra, who became a vampire and sacrificed herself so she couldn't hurt any children because she's nice like that. All right. So I want to rewind with, for all of the ways that I'm like, you know, I'm a good Cuban boy and stuff. You know, the, the origin of some of this is definitely that I grew up a good Greek boy too, right? You know, we're all a multitude of cultures and it's spectacular, right? And I very much love Electra. I have talked about it a lot on this show, and this is one of the coolest times to love Electra. I've talked a bit about how I prefer her as a mystique to a clearly defined character. But, you know, this might be the first time I have either of you discussing Electra. I would love to know your guys' opinions on her as well as your sort of best version of Electra. I think I'm really just starting to get to know Electra, having delved into the Zdarsky run and done that entire thing and rolled literally the next day into the first issue of Devil's Reign. So my connection to her from prior continuity is relatively minimal. You know, she's such a popular character that there's no way you don't run into her relatively regularly, even being primarily an X fan, especially crossing over with Wolverine quite a bit. But having delved into the Zdarsky run and really been engaging with basically every book that's coming out tied to Devil's Reign, I think I'm starting to see, I wouldn't even say a new side of her because I think that that comparison to Mystique is a smart one. She is a character that can be many things depending on what, what a writer needs in a way that still has a lot of consistency. And for readers, you can start to develop your own understanding of who and what Electra is and what she stands for. And that headcanon, minus some really out there ideas, is probably going to be relatively reasonable to map onto the character. And so I think I have been in the process of putting that all together in my head. And Devil's Reign X-Men is maybe not the most robust writing of the character, but seeing her in conversation with a character like Emma Frost, that has kind of anchored a real lot of my understanding of her. So that is the honest 
honest and uh, good answer to what my best version of Electra is. But in my heart, it's Jennifer Garner in the Daredevil movie. Well, I have to be honest. I don't know that that answer brings me to life. <laughs> but I know that I'm going to cut up some absolutely defenseless sandbags who never did anything to kill anybody's father in a poorly synced battle. But beyond that, I know that I have the two of you discussing Devil's Reign X-Men number two later this week, where we'll also be discussing the Wolverine and Elektra story from Elektra Black, White, and Blood number two, the only story that we haven't discussed from this miniseries outside of this first issue. So I can't wait to get to that coverage. I'm really genuinely excited. So Jonah, where does your Elektra electrify? So, Electra does not have any electric powers that I am aware of. Right, she's not just the girl version of the Spider-Man villain Electro. Correct. Correct. I want to springboard it for something that TK said, that Electra is a Swiss army knife of a comic book character. Because there are so many things to her backstory that people have added and given to her throughout the years, that at this point, if you need somebody to do something and you don't have a specific character in mind, you can probably just have Electra do it, because she is that version versatile in her storytelling and the amount of characterization and character details that they give her. Now, I have a very specifically biased point of view about Electra because I am dating one of the most aggressive Electra fans, and if you've ever stepped into Nico's personal spaces or seen pictures of it, there's an Electra in every single corner. Every time you take a picture of it, you will find a new Electra. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, like I'm a big old bulldog and stuff, but like step on me, mommy, like a thousand percent. <laughs> She is perfect. <laughs> yeah, no, and she definitely will step on you. I don't think she has any qualms about that. I think she definitely steps on Matt constantly. But Electra as a character, I actually don't know a lot about her actual history because I've only really read her in more modern comics. I actually don't know a lot of... I haven't read anything. It's more so things that Nico has told me. Now, if you're asking me who's my Electra, well, the only Electra that I really actually read was her over in Savage Avengers where she was the girl but she was cool. Um, Savage Avengers was just uh, was funny in a way that was so overly hyper masculine that Elektra just fit right in as the solo female at the time for it that I was like huh she really does just constantly hold her own no matter where you put her and I like that about Elektra Elektra I think represents a lot of different things for a lot of different people and I appreciate what the character has represented in comics for the many years that she's been around. Now, we're here today to specifically discuss Electra Black, White, and Blood number one, featuring Red Dawn, written by Charles Sewell, with pencils by Mark Bagley, inks by John Dell, and colors by Edgar Delgado. Not the devil, which, so in like the most Electra just drop them big old side balls right onto the table move I have ever seen in a comic book, the credit on Not the Devil is just just Leonardo Romero. It doesn't even say what he fucking did because he did everything. The credit is just his fucking name. That is awesome. We'll also be taking a look at The Crimson Path by Declan Shalvey and Simone Diarmani. There are a million amazing covers, but I have to imagine most people got the John Romita standard, which features J.R.J.R., John Dell, and Richard Eisenhoff. Of course, J.R.J.R.'s Electra being one of the most famous, most definitive, you know, in that way that Sienkiewicz defines Warlock with his signature. 
I feel as though J.R.J.R. Hare defines Electra, even if he didn't draw her for her first 20 years of existence. Now, the next thing I really need to point out is this book is interesting because if you were to go on to Marvel and read the description of the issue on Marvel's website for purchasing it, the actual solicit is fact. Now, pronunciation of fact. Definition of fact 1A, something that has actual existence. B, an actual occurrence. C, Electra Nachos is the best assassin in the Marvel Universe. I feel like that was a junior copywriter's first really big swing at doing copy for the website. Well, no, you see Nico broke into the website and changed it to say that. Yeah, some of this does kind of read like my fanfic. Like, I'm <laughs> not here to complain, but I mean, I am a little curious about some of the decisions because when you open up the book, the description on page one is Electronachios has been many things, ninja, assassin, killer. She served the armies of darkness as an agent of the hand and defended the people of Hell's Kitchen as Daredevil. These are some of her bloodiest, most harrowing battles. These are some of her bloodiest most harrowing battles these are i understand that i am very particular about my electra in like a very um you know uh don't make me bad baklava kind of way right but there is something very interesting about trying to discuss these in the same capacity we discussed the wolverines or in the same capacity that some of the issue stories from issue two were able to be discussed there is something very out of canon about all of these stories. Yeah, it has that kind of feel of lives and deaths of Wolverine insofar as it's trying to give you a bunch of different slices of Electra, but it is the exact opposite in terms of function. The Wolverine stories are meant to be like, this is a hugely important piece of canon that is going to add weight to the rest of the story for months or years to come, and that is very tied into what came before and these stories have absolutely no relevance at all are regardless I mean like and that's not to make any judgment on their quality they're beautiful and very interesting stories but they are tied to nothing they have no ongoing relevance that presents itself maybe somebody will tap into it later but that would be a surprise these are essentially what can a writer imagine about Electra? and it, it ties back to that Swiss Army Knife point these are stories that are believably Electra stories but are of absolutely no consequence to her current status in the Marvel Universe. When I discussed Verite by Al Ewing Rodrace and Yokai by Greg Smallwood, who, by the way, was credited as writer, artist, and colorist individually, perhaps it's because Joe Caramagna did the letters for the Yokai story and perhaps didn't for the story in issue two in question. But I felt when I discussed both of those, like they both very much sat in canon. And Jonah, when and I discussed the issue with you after, you know, asking you to read it, asking you to be on the segment. You were very taken aback by just how much they wanted to force Electra into story-wise. Yeah. So when I read and covered Wolverine, Black, White, and Blood, I really enjoyed it because these felt like plausible stories that I can see Wolverine in that also don't feel like it messes with any continuity going on, whether 
currently in the past or involving anything. It, it didn't. These stories were good inserts for the past or things that have happened that I can say, okay, I see how this makes sense. I see where Logan is in this. I see how this affects Logan, and I see how Logan reacts in this situation. None of them felt like out of the bounds. Like this isn't Logan. Logan would never be in this situation. Nothing about that. Here, however, I I guess I am having a hard time understanding what is going on. Now, the second story that's in this, I fully get. That goes in line with, I think, the Wolverine story was trying to do of, okay, I can fully believe Elektra is in a situation like this. But I'm reading this first story, and not that it's anywhere near a bad story, but Elektra gets attacked by vampires, becomes a vampire, and then self-sacrifices herself in the, when the sun comes up. Uh, so then Elektra dies at some point, but then how does she come back? It's... So then, well, oh, well, well. So Electra's really good at dying, right? She's actually- As I found out through this book. Yeah, the only thing Electra's better at than dying is coming back. And I know that Electra is really big into coming back from the dead, but this, I absolutely agree, feels like a stretch beyond what is my acceptable definition of Electra, what she's been through. I mean, the story literally opens with the sentence, in the time of blood and fang. So immediately, is this in another period? Is this recent? How did you guys feel? Since great way to jump into it, Jonah. I love, you know, examining this story right off the bat. How did you guys feel about that sort of in the time of Blood and Fang? I know we just had amazing coverage of the state of the Marvel Vampire Universe by Nathan and Steve in our last Magic Monday. So this felt very on point. I think this story works well. And for my two cents, I think because I know enough about Elektra, I thought the story was going to go somewhere more magical where she was going to purge the vampire blood from herself. And that was how it's going to resolve. And that she was going to have dealing with the vamp- the vampiristic qualities of seeing these veins and this hunger that's painstakingly taking over her. And I thought she was going to do some magic and blood would be expelled from her and that was going to be the end. I didn't think she was going to do a self-sacrifice where she was going to die. There's, again, nothing wrong with that. And it's pretty, you know, powerful storytelling. I think this fits with something Electra would do. I just don't know if it's the ending I would have gone with, especially starting off this book. I I understand that a lot of what this title is meant to be is a collection of short stories. I don't know if this is the best story to open the the book with. This is the first story for the the first issue. I don't know if this is where the story belongs to be its most powerful. And, you know, there is a lot of canon to back up your perspective that she should have been able to purge the vampirism from her system. Like, if we look back at the original Electra arc of Daredevil by Miller and uh, Jansen, it's it's definitely there. Yeah, and I think, I mean, by the end of this, I was essentially headcanoning that this is the universe that the Sevalithi vampires from Excalibur came from, because the look is kind of the same, and this is just obviously not our Electra. But I think the, the general point of this not being, A, this being confusing, and B, this not being the strong strongest starting point. I think if you flipped this and the second story, just getting you in the mood of here is an iconic Electra story and these are going to be uh, stories that the main character is obviously a version of Electra, even if it's not the exact one that we're used to following. But starting off with this just puts us on a in a mindset of are these Electra fairy tales? Are these, you know, Electra apocalypse? Theosis stories, it's just not really clear what the takeaway is supposed to be from this. 
I do want to give credit, though. This story utilized the motif of black, white, and blood the best in using where black and white coloring for majority of the title and where red is sporadically tossed throughout. I personally think the story utilized that concept the best. For sure. And I think it's definitely best expressed in the... So we talk a lot about Kiaskuro and about volume of and depth of black shade in terms of creating shadow and dimension but we don't really think of the volume and depth of shade of red, the hue of red in regard to these black, white, and blood stories quite as much as the digital page 11 shows it. That incredible red from the smoke pyre and the red still on her size handles, the orange shining in the girl's hair as a pink sunrise fills the world with the hope of Electra's soul of her decision to purify herself by letting the sun take her the sun which is here shown in white like there's so much powerful symbolism to the idea that the world becomes Electra when she sacrifices herself before the moon you're absolutely right the color combination is definitive here and you know this does actually conjure a lot of the best ever X-Men vampire stories again just a shout out to Nathan and Steve on that spectacular vampire nation segment but this reminds me a lot of Storm versus Dracula in a really hyper-dimensional dark way. I like it very much for that. I agree. It just was kind of in the wrong spot for me because I do wonder, is this a fairy tale? Is this the real deal? Whereas... with the second story not the devil I felt like this read so hyper true to actually Charles Sewell's Daredevil so you know Charles Sewell a guy who's written Electra before I don't think he missed the mark here you know you guys were talking about Dugan writing Electra earlier I think Dugan's work on Savage Avengers Electra is a lot stronger than perhaps his work on X-Men Devil's Reign Electra perhaps because she's transformed so powerfully under Zdarsky's pen but I think that you know Sewell is a master of his Daredevil craft maybe his run isn't one of my definitives but that doesn't mean that like I don't see how he understands the character and his Electra story maybe didn't have all of the power that the follow-up does in referencing what feels like Sewell's atmosphere how did you guys feel about the transition from courtly vampire lore to what is a motherfucking pulp comic like you can smell the balls on this art it's amazing looking at this art for some reason evokes like Andy Warhol like pop art like this is what I think of like I definitely definitely see it you know there's something yeah there's something very conversational and the uh, Randolph Chur that's a a classic Daredevil thing so like this feels like it's meant to feel that era very Studio 54 very uh, late 60s 70s uh, manic artist I love it like you can tell with the way that the facial structures are drawn the amount of inking used in certain details and like how there's like almost like like it's printed on 
graph paper where there's like a bunch of dots in the background. So it's a very familiar, certain stylistic approach that I think that the artist was going for that I really appreciate. And I can see the reference that, they're, that they were using for this. This story feels like a tried and true Electra mini issue that I can appreciate because I feel like this story is grounded in what you asked the common comic book reader who would be aware of Electra, maybe didn't read, doesn't read Electra or Daredevil, but has an understanding of what the basics of the character is. I think this is a story you can point to to say, okay, this is where you would think Electra would fit in the most. She's in Hell's Kitchen. She's going against Kingpin. She's being badass. She's being bloody. She's basically being a cool ninja and she stabs people. Like this is pretty, I think, cut and dry Electra. And there's nothing out of the ordinary from this story that feels like this couldn't be Electra, that this isn't specific to what Electra does. But I don't think this story is pushing the boundaries of who we know Electra is as a character. And that's completely fine. I don't think that's what the story was trying to do. And I don't think that's what the prompt of this title is trying to do. So this story, when I read it, felt like, okay, we're in the comfortable story. This is where I think people would expect to see Electra in this kind of situation. So for that reason, I really enjoyed what the story, this story was trying to tell us. It also speaks to another aspect of Electra and characters like Electra Wolverine being another big one. The characters that can kill without a second thought and, you know, are the best they are at what they do. But when they are forced to confront the humanity of what they're doing, in this case for Electra, it's the child of the man that she's assassinating. The reaction is not ever cruel, even if they still go ahead with the job and do the assassinating they were supposed to do. They take a certain amount of time to pause and engage with the fact that these killings have effects on people besides the person being murdered. They take some form of accountability. And I think that's a very important uh, aspect of a character character like Electra and it separates her from, you know, a character like Sabretooth for whom seeing the child of a person he was murdering would have absolutely no consequence. But for Electra it means something and it's not something that she can just ignore or walk away from without some shouldering of the consequences of what she's done, even if that doesn't defer her from doing it. And I love that one of the things that we're able to do is we're able to talk about Electra actively in both of these stories, despite the fact that the first story kind of violates my first rule of Electra. The first rule of Electra is you don't show Electra. And like, that's one of the reasons that the Zadarsky run had me keeping it at arm's length for a minute and then immediately won me over with a stellar interpretation of the character that shows such a deep and rich understanding. This story keeps Electra so hidden, but whereas many Electra stories keep her so hidden that even though you know it's her name on the fucking book. It could be Punisher. It could be Bullseye. It could be any number of people until it's clear that it's her. Here, number one, eight trillion points for this Greek-ass hair. This is as a, you know, I make a lot of jokes about how my hair was really complicated because it was Cuban. It was complicated because it was Cuban and Greek on a white boy. And like, this is some Greek-ass hair. And like, she so much doesn't appear through the beginning of the story. And by the time she does, she is now in like full-on agent of murder mode. 
And I really like a lot of the comparison you made to Wolverine because I feel like Wolverine and Elektra share a lot of symbolism. And it's, it's a little interesting, but I feel like whether it's the swords or the size or just the fact that Elektra has a very signature headpiece and hair unit with like dangly and, you know, loose, dark hair, there really is something about this issue of story that the first one and the second one, you could just sub Wolverine in for either one of these Elektra stories. It would change little things here and there for certain, but these down to the fact that neither one of them is an actually Asian character being subbed into very, what feels oftentimes like Asian and ninja stories. I've never been more aware how interchangeable these characters are. I don't even know how to approach the third one. Like, I love it. I genuinely need to start with, I do love this third story. It is such a I'm going to think about this piece of art for a really long time. I'm going to think about this piece of art for a really long time because what I thought about when it when it ended, when it said, and I am free on the last page, it made me wonder what if Electra really is like not exactly dying through the multiverse, but what if all Electras really are one Electra? What if that's one of the ways she is magic? And one of the reasons she's such an amazing assassin and such amazing such an amazing fighter and such a study in dynamic contrasts because there are so many Electra in her and you know ending it on the symbolism of the tree you know snake root Electra root of evil there's so much powerful symbolism you know and if you study chaste and hand and um, you know it's all very powerfully tied to her identity but I feel in many ways like the visual symbolism of this story bounces between like comedy tragedy Shakespeare and then some kind Kind of like maybe a Shakespearean comedy tragedy Power Ranger Shogun Zord? Like I would throw Greek myth in there too. Ooh, good, good. Yeah, I mean, my first thought as I was looking at the art, and the art really is gorgeous, and thinking about who Electra is in her background was this felt to me like it was tapping into Greek myth and that aspect of her heritage. Not in any kind of way that was like, this is one of my ancestors and this is a thing that happened but stylistically and in the main story beats and format of the story it very much read to me like a greek myth and made me sort of think i think similarly to what you were saying nico about sort of again let's go greek with it the platonic form of electra and what the idea of her might mean i don't even want to say across the multiverse because it's not a, she's not a nexus being it's not as complicated as all of that but this idea that there is a form that Electra takes that goes a step beyond the commonality that any version of a character that you're going to see is going to have some specific traits that they all share. So what I think works best for this story is that this story is so fantastical and whimsical in about symbolism and about where it's drawing its influences from that you can tell this wasn't meant to be a story that is confusing as to where it fits into canon because that's not what the story is really meant to be. It's kind of more talking about Electra's role in her life, in the world, and how she kind of fits in as this character within a Greek tragedy. She is this very tragic 
tragic character and the, all the things that have happened to her in her past, the things she goes through, the strife that she carries, the burdens that she carries forward for other people in order to be a hero, in order to be a villain, in order to be an anti-hero, whatever role she's currently filling, whatever mask that she's currently wearing. This story does a really good job in trying to invoke that sense of symbolism, invoke that you can probably see this as a stage play. There's so many different things that work well for this story where it goes so far in the direction of symbolic tragedy that you don't really care about that it doesn't really fit into an idea of canon continuity logic it's not meant to i really enjoy the symbolism used throughout the story in order to talk about electra's life well and i think some of the magic of the story is in the intentionally cross visual symbolism you know for all of the greek and you know my sort of surface shakespearean read there's a lot of christian symbolism in this with you know a very sort of purified white standing uh you know the doves the the giant star bursting out of the immortal child representing purity in the face of a savior you know but then we also have like guns and like an oni technology yeah one of the things that you said tk that really is going to stick with me for a while is you said you know she's not as complicated as a nexus being and you're totally right she's something much more ubiquitous and yet ever present she's like a shadow no matter what every world has some sort of dark and if there is a shadow Electra's in it and that is I think one of the reasons that you can get so many Electra and Psylocke figures that are just the exact same figure with the color palette swapped because she can also shadow port kind of I'm kidding but I think Electra really does serve a very necessary purpose in the Marvel Universe Storm we talk a lot about being a character that can serve a million roles but they are almost all always noble it is okay for Electra to serve an ignoble purpose I like the way that the monsters are designed, and I like that Matt was one of them. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of famous history between Matt and Elektra seeing each other in symbolic form, whether it's in the pages of Elektra Assassin, of course, by the incredible team of Miller and Varley, or it's in the pages of Daredevil itself. So many times we see that sort of symbolism of the man versus the monster, and I definitely agree. Having Matt visually represented creates a sense of, like, grounded iconography that helps enhance understanding it from Electra's perspective. Also symbolically represented is Lester Bullseye, as well as, I believe that's Nick Fury. It super turns me on that I have programmed you to refer to him as Lester, because it's something Matt does to undermine him, and it's really hot that you do it. Well, it's what Lester deserves, because we know that's what he likes. Guys, thank you so much for coming out to talk about Electra Black, White, and Blood, number one with me, especially because, you know, I'd already talked a bit about number two, and I know that we're going to finish out the coverage of Electra Black, White, and number two, featuring the Peter David and Greg Land story in our next episode, and that's going to be a whole lot of fun. But until then, I want to talk about today's centerpiece for a second. You know, the bold move of saying it's time to have female heroes take on these mantles isn't so much a bold move as it is is a move that was well overdue. And, you know, I wish that every hero could just take on their own mantle without having to share, you know, their loved one's namesake. But Jed McKay sought to create a story by where Clea can create a defined role for herself as the Sorcerer Supreme. She's not Doctor Strange. She's a strange one, but she's definitely not the Doctor you're used to. And I hope you guys enjoy this coverage just as much as I enjoyed getting a chance to edit it. And if you guys like what you hear, you might even like what you see. So don't forget to give us a subscribe over on Twitter at X's for podcast.
Hey everybody, welcome to another segment of X's for Podcast where we talk about mutants, magic, and marvels. I'm Nathan, you can find me online talking about trying to resurrect some dead Avengers at Dazzler AOA on Twitter. That Dazzler AOA on Twitter. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that would make me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread. That's right, I had a little bit of a rebrand right there. And hopefully you will survive this episode, unlike the Blasphemy Cartel. Oh. Or Victor Von Doom's Pride. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's immortal. And, <laughs> and I guess that means we're talking about the strange one. I mean, strange number one. Strange number one. I love it. How are we loving the dark difference between how Clea is Sorcerer Supreme and that old fuddy-duddy Steven? I love it. I find it. it hilarious because, like, most most of my introduction um, to Clea, most of the times that I've seen Clea, it's through Stephen Strange's rose-tinted glasses. Totally. So you always see her with just, they're really witty, they're really sharp, like, she's cool, she's competent, she's, like, totally got this under control, but, you know, still, pr- like, relatively nice to see her go oh i'm sorry this is not the bitch you were looking for i'm like this is this is not love interest clea right this is clea who is the ruler of the dark dimension (laughs) daughter of umar like i love it (laughs) so death of dr strange was my first time seeing clea so (laughs) there she was just kind of mourning Mm-hmm. And now she's like all badass, and I love her. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, I gotta say, like wearing the cloak like that, just you know, I, I assume she's either naked or she's in her underwear under that. But like, just waking up wearing her cloak like that to answer the door <laughs> is a fucking power move. And you know, thankfully, Von Doom didn't make any "trust yourself, woman" kind of comments that you know sometimes <sighs> you expect from him. I mean, he still said woman on I actually understand why she wore the cloak that way like she even said I've got to have like a suit of armor to answer the door so having a levitating cloak on that will automatically pull its master away from danger is smart did like the speaking of haunted suits of armor bit that was uh really great Clea is really not having it with with Dr. Doom and that's appropriate nobody should put up with him I'm just amazed that he's able to walk around New York without any issue (laughs) show up at at, (laughs) I'm sure sure but he just leaves his country whenever he wants well what is the average citizen going to do to this megalomaniac that's true like between diplomatic immunity massive amounts of magical power and just being absolutely zero fucks (laughs) given for any sort of life form other than himself like if you're yeah yeah Yeah. Are you the cop who's going to arrest Dr. Doom? For what? <laughs> I didn't see shit past me the donuts. Mm. I'd be like, uh, Avengers, there is Dr. Doom running around. Like, can you come and stop him, please? <laughs> I'm sure the Avengers at this point are just going, nah, you didn't see shit, dude. You didn't see shit. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, he went to the Sanctum Sanctorium. Let, let's strange you with it. Oh, wait, no, there's right. no Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, they don't know about Clea. 
Uh-oh, they're about to. <laughs> they are about to. Oh, um, my goodness. I love how we are instantaneously transported to a very big paradigm shift between the Sorcerer Supreme and Strange's support cast. Like, Wong in this issue. Steve, I'm going to let you talk about some of your artistic things you didn't like about this. But, you know, Wong in this issue, the very different Wong. I thought the pencils were pretty great in this. It's definitely a style of work that was a little off-putting to me at first. I think a lot of the work is really good in this issue. It's not bad by any stretch. I like cartoony stuff like this a lot of the time. Clea's faces are pretty funny, except for there's some teeth. There's some teeth problems with Clea. And Wong is drawn here with four or five different shaped noses and looks like several different people. It is it is weird and it was a little off-putting. Like, there's nothing wrong with Wong having a big nose, but like, he usually doesn't. He's usually drawn with like a really small, thin nose. He's literally drawn that way in Moon Knight, which came out the same week. It doesn't look like Wong and it's fine if this is like how this person envisions Wong, but I feel like the nose shifts in size and shape considerably throughout this issue to the point where I'm wondering if this is because of the two anchors and there's like a, a disagreement on how they were inking him, but it was distracting throughout the issue for me. Other than that, I really, really liked the drawings of uh, Clea as like a terrifying other dimensional flame being. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I'm, I'm looking at a side-by-side panel here of the Wong coming through a door and then Wong flopping down on the couch and literally it's yes. side by side and his nose looks in one panel tiny and mm-hmm. the next panel very large and bulbous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it continues to shift. Like there are times where it looks flat and wide as mm-hmm. a barn door and there are times when it looks like a giant like thick bridged straight nose it is it's like it's weirdly variable throughout to the point where i like i don't know it took me right out of the story as a guy with a big nose you know like that's not a problem <laughs> <laughs> it's it's especially evident when they arrive at the shrouded bazaar his yeah it's just like right there like one panel to the next yeah Half his face is his nose. And he's dressed like Chris Evans undercover, and that doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the baseball cap and shades. I'm like, he's hungover. That is what it is, yeah. right? He's hungover and his head is cold. But yes. it's, it's the Steve Rogers disguise kit. Like, <laughs> no, he's, he's hungover and he didn't have time to shave his head again this morning. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you just don't want the head double, you know, just poking out, you know. So I get it. I get it. I get okay. it. Mm-hmm. No, um, but I'm, I, I'm definitely there with you when it comes to the art style being kind of problematic because Clea is having that same issue and I'm saying this from a woman's point of view. The cheesecakey positions that they put Clea in, especially when she's just turned into the Sorcerer Supreme first time, you know raging at, at Doom. Mm. The very cheesecake in that first panel and then in the next panel you've got that whole turn to the side so you can see my ass and boobs. I am so sick and tired of these skin tight body suit outfits. They're lazy as fuck and they are only meant to show off the body. This is the Sorcerer Supreme. She looked better when she was just wearing the levitation cape. She was more covered and had more texture and more visual interesting elements to her costume than when she turns into the Sorcerer Supreme and doesn't even have boots. I can see that they are sheer like stockings. I can see individual toes. 
it is unfortunate as well that we don't get to keep the extremely cool purple Clea costume from Death of Doctor Strange that she also wears in this issue. Yeah. I don't know why she feels the need to yeah. step mm-hmm. into like Doctor Strange's like 70s superhero duds, but yeah, it's not as good. Yeah. It's it's like Miss Marvel. Yeah, it's very derivative of early Ms. Marvel. You've got that that sash around her waist, and the only thing different is that she has a cape. I would have loved it if if as her sorcerer supreme outfit, she kept that purple outfit and maybe mm-hmm. made the cloak of levitation like a beautiful purple to match it because you know you can change the color of that cloak through magic why the fuck not you know mm-hmm. you, can do, you can do everything else like i would have loved it if she was able to keep more of her individual style while she was acting in the role of drain i do find it odd that she does switch back and forth between those outfits i love seeing that and like you can give me that like deathstalkers type outfit anytime because like fuck yeah it's amazing but yeah i, I don't really need like i get what you're saying about the over sexualized version of drain outfit which strikes me as funny even her really sexy purple outfit is less sexualized than the strange outfit though. yep yeah and i and I love this purple outfit. It's so even good. If, even if you were to alter it slightly to to more match up with Stephen Strange colors, and then add that cape. Oh my god, I would die for it. Like make this a beautiful cobalt blue with you know like bits of red to highlight, and then gold for the trims. Oh my god, yes, you do. So just oh, just I, mm, come on. I'm a fucking sucker for those fucking purple tights that she's got on with those beautiful patterns, and like like it's so like. I, I know, like, that we have some problems with maybe the consistency of the art, but I love how in this issue, like, still, even with that, the beautiful patterns in her purple outfit still stand out and still see all the line work and still see the beautiful colors with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, the, th- the thing that I like about the purple outfit is that there's just so much texture to it. It just, you have the different lines. You have the things coming up off of her shoulders. You've got the, the ragged cape. Everything just feels lived in as a Opposed to that bodysuit that just feels painted on. Now, one thing that Raven pointed out, I as, as a negative, I actually sort of like. I like the idea of this, you know, top level sorceress actually still being able to be seen as a sexual being. Like, I, I love that even though she is the top in her field, you know, and was Stephen Strange's wife, whatever, she is still able to be viewed as a sexual being, and you know, is is very in control of her body. Yeah, but here's the thing. The purple outfit she is wearing is gorgeously sexy. It is beautiful. You've got that bustier. You've got those beautifully textured, you know, tights with that filmy, you know, skirt at the sides. It's beautifully sexy, but that bodysuit is literally just painted on. Yeah. And it's lazy. And that's my problem with it. It's lazy. And between that and the cheesecake poses that they're putting the Sorceress Supreme in, I'm just like, it's it's tiresome because it's been done in the 80s and in the 90s and in the early thousands and in the early you know 2010 this it's 2022 and i'm looking through this whole book and every male character and even some of the female characters that are represented in the background like at the bazaar have all different kinds of clothing on and yet your sorceress supreme has on a painted on bodysuit and a sack uh yeah and we just got done having a hellfire gala so i'm like i'm gonna take half gloves and a sweet collar over you know a painted on bodysuit any day from now on when it comes to superheroes i think the bar has been raised mm-hmm. how do we feel about the shrouded bazaar that we went to i love the fact that the new <laughs> doctor 
Strange got so irritated by Victor Von Doom, like not even like really that threatened, just irritated that she needed to go out and get a really fucking strong cup of coffee. <laughs> dark Dimension Roast. <laughs> if they don't sell and market some dark, dark coffee, Marvel, please. Perfect please. promotional tie-in. I really enjoyed her, like literally just like shit posting at Doom, like just completely making shit up and being like, "Yeah, I'm his. I, I'm married to Strange, so I took the last name Strange. So there's a Doctor Strange on Bleecker Street. See, you can't. I foolproof. And I, I like that later in the issue, she literally is talking to Wong, and she's like, "Yeah, that's not gonna hold up, but I got something else going on. I'm very interested to see like more of this like weird like breaking the rules and kind of fucking with the mechanics of the Sorcerer Supreme that she's doing because like as as Doom rightly points out, this is not how it works normally. <laughs> this is not a title passed on to your wife or heir. <laughs> That's crazy. So yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's super interesting. She throws at him like the last thing Stephen would want is for you to be the fucking Sorcerer Supreme. So I am definitely not fucking giving it to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was that was so fucking good. <laughs> I mean, my favorite part was her explaining to Doom that Stephen had fought for the Vashanti in their mm-hmm. war and that they would take his last wish into higher consideration than Dr. Doom's crying about not being the Sorcerer Supreme. And I'm like, oh, I like that. That's good. Where, where were you? Where were mm-hmm. you? That's right. You cowered when the warlord showed up. You didn't do shit. I'm like, oh. <gasps> <laughs> I'm always here for somebody to try to cut down Victor Von Doom. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the fact they kept her quick wit and her very, very sharp tongue, but also added that layer of I'm a I'm a Faltine, you know, warlord. I am daughter to Umara. I am the niece of Dormammu. What you got, little bitch? I'm like, oh, she she is definitely not uh, any sort of a shrinking violet. I, I love that Clea love that. is like to fucketh around is to findeth out. (laughs) (laughs) As the uh, blasphemy cartel found out the hard way. Thunderstrike's back, baby. (laughs) Eric Masterson. Thunderstruck. 90s ass Thor. I am not familiar. Holes missing in him where the plates would be. I loved it. I was shocked as hell that, like, I knew it wasn't going to be strange, but Mm. I was like, Thunderstrike? I was like, I had to go look at the wiki and be like, oh, he did die. That's right. That's right. Because his son took over the mantle. And then I was like, hmm, what an interesting choice. And I didn't pay enough attention to the first read through. And I was like, wait, what is this weird look for Grim Reaper? But that is the Harvester who is going to be a new overarch villain for Clea in this arc. I honestly not wait because it looks so good. It looks intimidating and it looks like one of those characters that could actually have some long reaching appearance in the storyline. Yeah. Thunderstrike is a choice to be resurrected in the first issue. What other obscure 90s Avengers or just character would you like to see resurrected in a book like this? I'm gonna throw out Yellow Jacket Rita because she died horribly by Tony Stark hand. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing Yellow Jacket come back i'm personally very excited for thunderstrike i like thunderstrike i don't know why i like thunderstrike it's probably because i was born around the time that he was showing up in comics (laughs) it was a big deal for me 
I we just got back Doctor Druid in a run of Doctor Strange that I was not particularly hot on, so I would love to see what Jed McKay would do with Doctor Druid. Oh, okay. Um, all of the uh, people, all the characters that I are aware of being dead are already being resurrected because they're mutants. So <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> because my reading is so uh, uh, focused. <laughs> it is a golden age of mutant resurrection. It yeah, Krakoa long may they live. I'm working on it though. I'm I'm going back and reading stuff. I would like to see some of the past Sorcerer Supremes. Oh, okay. I mean, honestly, bring back any of the past Sorcerer Supremes for you know, like even if you have to like make them an ethereal form or you know, borrowing like like a temporary uh, magic made mannequin. But I mean, with all the time hopping weird magic we've been having lately, it'd be great to see how how past Sorcerer Supremes would handle the modern era because Kushala's version of the Sorcerer Supreme, especially since they were also a ghostwriter, was a very, very different experience than, say, old Sorcerer Supreme. I love The Conjurer. Please, let's bring that back. Uh, Nina was, was super cool. I would definitely love to see more of her. But at the same time, I'm not sure that I would want to have multiple Sorcerers Supreme vying for space in this book at the moment. I want Clea to really step into her own and really mm. own this series. But at the same time, yet again, I don't want Clea's main motivation to be focused solely on her man. Oh, agree. Yes. She is, she is yes. out there, like the B-52. She's like, give me back my man. And like, we don't really need to have her do that. Like, really want her to, you know, go out there and just thrive as a character. And yeah, she's, mm-hmm. she's gonna miss her husband who like, I guess they were still married. It was really weird. And I'm like, whatever, okay. But like, she's still gonna miss this man. Like, even even the art, we may have some like small little picks that we are like, hey, cool. I wish they would have rather done this different. Like, I gotta say overall, like this whole book and story for me is something I'm excited to see. Yeah, I got a lot of faith in Jed McKay to tell a story, especially a story starring like a, a woman with a ruthless intent, judging from what very little I've read yet of the Black Cat run. I've just started on it and it's very exciting. Yeah, and I mean, just because I point out things that I consider flaws doesn't mean I'm not very into this book or very ready to to read this story. If I never voiced a, a critique, oh, no, then, you know, if, if nobody ever voiced a critique, we would not have the great stories that we have. And I'd much rather, you know, voice a concern and have it addressed, then never say anything and never get better stories in the future. I was meaning to ask you, Raven, did you recognize this lightning sigil over Thunderstrike's head? I did not. I was trying to find if it was a rune or if it was in an esoteric book somewhere. I have not been able to find a match for this sigil. It, it looks like I don't, you know, it almost reminds me of, of uh, Phoenix Echo. Like, mm. I've seen something kind of similar, but it looks it looks like a blending between either um, a Native American symbol and a uh, Norse runic symbol. Mm. Yeah, it also reminds but yeah, me of like the, I, the I, I do not. Signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> do not stick coat hanger in this socket. God. Yeah. But no, I, I don't recognize it as, as an established symbol. This looks like its own thing. 
Very nice. I'm never going to be able to undo that now. <laughs> I'm just glad I have no hair that can stand up because it would probably stand up all the time from electrical shock. I don't know why I continue to put hangers in the electric socket. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this time will be different. <laughs> nope. I'm intrigued to see more about this Harvest Man figure. I don't know if he's ever showed up before, but I'm going to be referring to him as Daddy Longscythe throughout the rest of the series, probably. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, love a good Harvest Man. Jed McKay's always giving us sexy villains like the sweater and Daddy Longscythe. Like, According to Jed McKay, the sweater is a sexy villain. <laughs> True. <laughs> The sweater is a sexy villain, okay? And if you're not reading Moon Knight, you really should. I love the mix of looks for the Harvest Man because we've got the, you know, Madame Mask type or Destiny type mask. We've got a lot of elements from maybe like the Grim Reaper. It's just a really good combination and it's a really striking look and I'm fucking intrigued. I was like, yeah, that's a lot of skeleton keys and, you know, the old style padlock. I'm like, see, this is a very interesting multi-layer textured outfit. Maybe. Oh. We couldn't get a pair of boobs on it. <laughs> yeah, we got padlocks around the neck. We got a leather buckle strap around the collar. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying you can more elements. Hey, let us have sexy daddy long slice, okay? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Well, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying, you can have an interesting character, oh, yeah. and yeah, it's like I love it. I love, I love this design. I really do want to see more from this villain, and I can't wait for the next issue. Yeah, and I, I kind of hope Thunderstrike just runs around like with these like bones, like these holes in his stomach and the bone sticking out. What did we think about the fight in the Shrouded Bazaar? What yeah, it was brutal. I wasn't expecting it, and I loved it. The fact that she was just like you know what no you're just gonna die bye yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, there was nothing soft or polite she's like uh well gotta die now <laughs> like damn girl yeah I, I wasn't expecting that all from a strange book so yeah Yay. I love when they throw the Solomon grenade <laughs> oh yeah and she's like really just like you could tell she was just tired she's like I didn't I'm like Laura I didn't even get to finish my coffee before showing up to this fight like how dare you <laughs> <laughs> my parents <laughs> were sticking demons in themselves like damn they, they, <laughs> i almost feel bad for them <laughs> and she didn't just like defeat the demon she took it for mm -hmm. her own and i'm like this is mine right she took it like a dave and buster's card to like yeah. i'll use this later like <laughs> 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 what I shall I shall call him Squishy. <laughs> I think my favorite panel of the whole fight was like I love the whole thing and the brutality of it is something I'm absolutely not used to seeing from a strange comic and I, I i love how it sets aside the stark differences between the two strange characters i i would say my favorite panel is on page 22 of digital where right after the demon comes and he's like i am free and then like you know she's over there fighting and then like she just like disintegrates the skin off of the guy that she's fighting is she like i'm just like this is some brutal shit and then it goes into her almost like uh i call it her 
her binary form, like her, like, you know, her magically imbued with energy. And like, she's just like, she fucking is wreaking power right there. And I love it. The fight was just fine to me. It wasn't necessarily something that really got me excited, but I did like how it immediately presents a stark difference between the way Clea and Strange would handle this. I think that's the, that's like the main thing this whole issue feels like it's doing is setting up the, like, there's a new Strange in town and this one is not like your old Strange. It's not your father's Strange. Not at all. It was a fucked up Pokemon battle. (laughs) (laughs) She got the Gyarados in the end, but like, damn. She is going to evolve you to death. (laughs) Her gym is always on top. (laughs) Team Rocket wishes, Team Rocket wishes they would. I also love the guy being summoned back to like his master or whatever and just dissolving into butterflies. I'm like, I was for me. One of the things that I am looking forward to the most is obviously this was a setup issue and it had to set up a lot of stuff we were talking about. I had to set up her motivation. It had to set up, you know, uh, you had, you almost had to have Victor Von Doom come in and say, I want the title of Sorcerer Supreme. And she's like, fuck no. Like, you know, and I love how it set up her to actually be an independent character. Yes. Her, her goal is to get her, husband back but she is like in this issue able to shine in a way and set up some really stark differences i I wonder where everyone wants this story to go i i'm just gonna say like i personally have no expectations as to where i would want a jen mckay story to go anymore because he's kind of time and time again proven to me that you know what throw out what you think is gonna happen because moon knight is getting more and more like esoteric and i'm just like here for every minute of it but like you know if if i had to say a direction i'd love it to go it's a harder to find series that came out in like the 2000s like i'd love it for me to be like magic black sun like from the pages of black sun because it was one of the few times like yeah i know it's amanda sefton i always talk about her and she was magic at the time but like it was one of those few series that like you really got to see like the inner workings of marvel's magic mythos and like we actually got to see somebody run limbo in a way that Ileana doesn't really run Limbo. Ileana conquers Limbo, like, but Amanda had to run Limbo. So I was here for that. So where would all of y'all like to see the story go? As a character who mourns and grieves and and learns that, you know, no, I guess I have to grow beyond this, you know, this one desire, you know, to become a better person, because I think that will honestly be a more interesting story rather than the, she has to get get her man back because that is a one true burning desire like <laughs> like i understand like i understand it. i totally understand the desire to want to bring back stephen strange she just lost her husband like three times over but i also do want to see what the conflict between being sorcerer supreme of earth and sorcerer supreme of dark dimension is gonna look like yeah all of that i totally agree i want to see i want to know what clea's like i want to know what kind of movies she watches like what kind of food does she like what what is she like outside of her relationship with stephen yeah, I I have to agree. I mean, I, I want her to spend more time just on herself, but I also want to see what's going on in the dark dimension. Yeah. yeah, agreed. I am here for it, and I am here for whatever direction we end up going, because I know it's going to be a wild ride, and I know we are going to have fun along the way. I'd love to see continued interaction between her and the rest of the Marvel Universe and getting to know the magical, mystical leaders and movers and shakers 
you know, we already know through Death of Doctor Strange, she's got somewhat of a relationship with Ileana. Like, they at least know each other. They both showed up and, you know, we're like, we're, we got your back, Steven. I want to see more of that. And I'd love to see her interacting with a lot more strong women like that, too. What final thoughts would you all have for this issue? Interesting first issue. I'm maybe not as hot on it because of the the kind of jarring inks that I think are my issue with the issue. I'm not, you know, an expert or an analyst, but I am very interested to see where this goes. And I, my final thought on this issue is that it's an intriguing setup and it introduces a new character. But if I wasn't already like big on Doctor Strange and Jed McKay and Clea, I'm not sure if this issue would have pulled me along for the rest of the ride. Fair. I'm sold. I was surprised by this book. I absolutely loved it. The, the brutality of it is not something that I normally like. And here it worked really well. I'm looking forward to seeing where Jed McKay takes it. I mean, I love what Jed McKay has done with Doctor Strange. I very much want to see what they, what, yeah, what they do with, with Clea. It's definitely a first issue, but I'm also really, really here for it. So I cannot wait to see how it develops and how it becomes even more, because I know that there is too much more that will be going on in this. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely here for it. I'm definitely here for the ride. But yeah, it was still very much a first issue. Yeah, same. I am here for this ride. And, you know, if Jed continues to keep trying to drive Marvel down that, like, cool old school vertical route, which is kind of like what he's doing with Moon Knight the last few issues, like, you can sign me the fuck up for everything. So, yes, 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 please. Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. And one of the things I love the most about this show is when a miniseries comes to its full due, getting to hear people who had an opinion at issue one have a totally different opinion at issue five. It's one of the most fascinating things for me as an editor. And it's a real pleasure to get to hear everybody connect with a story over time like people did with this Phoenix miniseries. As always, guys, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. That's Magic Mondays, X-Men X Wednesdays, and Marvel Fanfare Fridays every week for you guys. As always, I am Nico Action. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until next time, enjoy this last segment. Keep those mutant lights lit, those going gateways open. Next time there will be Wolverine, and we'll see ya. Hey everybody, welcome back to another segment of X's for Podcast, the show where we cover Marvel's magic, mutants, and white-hot adversaries. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at TeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Hey everyone, I'm Jake, hanging out here in the white-hot room with my pals. You can find me in my corner of Twitter, uh, Omega Sentinel, O-H Mega Sentinel. And it's Nathan, and I've got magical earrings that just appear out of nowhere, and you're like, hey, do you, have you always had those earrings? Yeah, why not? And you can find me on Twitter at Dazzler AOA. These have always brought me luck, and we hope hope you survived this experience <laughs> unlike the adversary who very quite handily was defeated in a way that i quite very much so enjoyed and that must mean we're covering phoenix song echo number five this issue was written by rebecca Rowanhorse, art by luca maresca colors by carlos lopez and letters by vcs ariana meyer and let's just get started let's just go get into this this was the final issue of this series for echo this solo series 
series written by an indigenous writer. I would love to know everybody's opinions on this run and this these this miniseries overall. What is your opinions? Did you enjoy this? What are some, you know, what did you really uh, enjoy about this run? Okay, so I gotta admit, like, the first two issues, I was very, 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 very harsh on the series. Starting with issue three, and then issue four, and then this final issue, it morphed into something that I actually enjoyed overall as a whole. And, you know, I always gotta say when I'm wrong, because at first I had no idea where she was going with this, and I was like, what? I don't like this. Where is she going? What is she doing? But then, as the story progressed, I was able to see her vision for it, her vision for Echo, the internal drama that she was going through, and overall, overall as a whole, for me, the ending landed the whole series. I think this is definitely going to be something that reads a lot better as a trade, and having read it all again over this morning, it's something that I can appreciate more as the whole trade, and, you know, so like if you're sitting there reading it issue by issue, I don't think you're going to get the same enjoyment as you are if you're going to sit there and you read the whole complete story. There's still a few things that like maybe I didn't love how she did like I didn't love how she introed Forge I didn't think like it was the best setup and she was probably going for Forge to be sort of a counterpoint adversary for Phoenix at that point and that's why she introduced Forge so early on and in the way that she did I would have loved to see a different dynamic and have Forge be more of a helper and a teacher but overall it really touched on a lot of what I like about the characters and in doing so and setting up Forge to be in that way I think she really kind of captured some of the essence of how people really see Forge. I really see Forge usually as more of a, you know, he's, he's a kind of a gruff guy, but he's got a big heart and he's a little misunderstood sometimes. And I do think through the end, that really came through. I couldn't agree more with you, Nathan, on how this all really came together in this last issue. I didn't start reading until issue four, so I got the first few issues all in one go. And really, I thought there was a, a lot of, uh, kind of a dreamlike quality to the transition in major moments from the city to the reservation to the, the like various time jumping into the white hot room overall though I thought the story really really came together I really liked what she did with Forge what Rebecca did with Forge I think that there was a lot of really there were a lot of really interesting parallels to what Forge was doing here as a sort of like attempt to be a mentor <laughs> and in what happened to him during the pre like the setup for Fall of the Mutants in the 80s with his teacher who was trying to you know constrain him and say this is the way you have to be in order to like meet this thing that's coming in your life you know in a similar way Maya broke out of the control that he was trying to put around her and said you know I'm going to go deal with this my way and it's certainly not going to be your way I thought that this was a remarkable end to his great destiny to defeat the adversary because that's that's always been the thing from the get-go is that he was the maker and he would be the one who fought and faced and fought the adversary and finally defeated him which didn't happen at any point previous to this every time it was oh the adversary is a fundamental force of the universe and can't be erased getting to see that arc finally have its close was really really satisfying the art in this book by every artist who's contributed to whether it's the cover or the pages is stunningly beautiful i just find it hysterical that wolverine is on this cover it is one of those things where marvel can put wolverine on something and people will buy it because they think wolverine is in it it also (laughs) isn't like i wonder if maybe marvel saw where this story was going when rebecca you know turned in the script to the editor and was like this is what i want to do this is where it's going to go and i wonder if there was meant to be any tie-in or correlation to what's going on in you know death and lives of wolverine he's currently you know traveling back in time and sending himself Mm. to deal with people's quote-unquote ancestors and stuff like that so there is you know some connection to what's going on in this title versus and what's going 
on and concurrent other titles. I, I just find it's just one of those things that I just found very funny. Oh, well, <laughs> there's definitely a thematic parallel, if nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to know, how do you guys feel about this use of the white hot room? So where I left with older comics and where a lot of modern comics take elements from and we're still, you know, deal with a lot of things, I actually hadn't gotten to anywhere near the white hot room. That's a semi-lie. So I read a lot of the classic X-Men backup issues and a lot of those stories, they tend, they're really great if you are somebody who who's already read things, but if you hadn't already read things and that was your first experience to them, they tend to actually spoil some pretty big things. There's a lot involving specifically Jean when she had the Phoenix Force Mm -hmm. and some other characters and stories that wouldn't come out till many years later. So uh, the White Hot Room is not the most familiar concept to me, but I would love to know your both of your, if you have a lot of experience with the concept of the White Hot Room, do you like how it was utilized here? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anything about it that stuck out that you were like yes this is this is getting me hot and white in all of this room that was (laughs) very bad so my background is in religion and mythology and so i have always really loved the way grant morrison weaves in sort of elements and themes of real world mythology and claremont too obviously Um, you know that's that's one of the reasons claremont's one of the greats so the white hot room is kind of a to me reads kind of like this kabbalistic like origin creation like this is the the oven from which all of reality springs forward this is the 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 Ein Sof, you know, the purest form of manifestation reality. It's, you know, where we see the phoenix on the page, it's, you know, the material phoenix fallen into the material world, and the white hot room represents the most transcendent level of creation, where everything is kind of one, and all power is one, and all energy is one. And as the idea has evolved, it, it's very much been, in the Marvel Universe, connected to the phoenix. It's the place where the phoenix rests when she's not in someone. It's the place where Jean went after she died, and the place where she came back from. It's the place where all, I guess, potential phoenixes live as well, because that's something we see at the end of Grant Morrison's new X-Men run. We see, I believe for the first time, a version of Quentin Choir in a phoenix costume as well. I think that this sort of evolution of what the White Hot Room is as a, a place where the phoenix can return to and as a source of phoenix's power um, is pretty narratively consistent. And I like this idea that other entities can try and use that, that source as a way of corruption or co-opt. The White Hot Room first appeared in Classic X-Men number eight, but it wasn't really until Morrison that the idea really developed. But the way the idea developed really reminds me a lot of, of the Celestial Temple in Star Trek Deep Space Nine with the prophets. Mm-hmm. It's it's very much seems to be like, to you know, reference that again, like that where the wormhole aliens live. It's And since the Phoenix Force itself is not a linear being, that there can exist things outside of this same time that you're in so like if all of the phoenix hosts have access to the white hot room part of them is always going to live on in this room and part of them can be accessed at any time as we view it because the phoenix exists sort of always and it always exists and it doesn't see time in the same mm-hmm. i love i love the use of it like that and i love the way it's been presented obviously we don't see much of it outside of obviously since it's where the phoenix lives we don't see anything of it outside of phoenix really 
related stories. We did see Rachel Summers access it once during right before House of M. And, you know, she wasn't really a Phoenix host at the time, but she did have shards of the Phoenix power still running through her. I love the idea and I love what they can use to play with it. And I love how all of the the three Phoenix miniseries that have been out so far in Song War Song and now Phoenix Song have all really gone out of their way to develop the white hot room and the Phoenix as an idea more than just Jean Grey got an extra power up like she was when she first got it. I also believe that during uh, Avengers versus X-Men when Scott Summers when Cyclops goes Dark Phoenix he I think bumps his head against the wall of the white hot room but doesn't have access to it Ah, uh, which I thought was a really interesting take because I think Gene speaks to him from the other side of the wall and is like what are you doing yes um, yes yeah your comparison to the Temple of the Prophets kind of reminded me for, for Brandon Sanderson fans out there it's kind of like the spiritual realm in the whole spiritual cognitive and physical dynamic of the Cosmere too yes and you know to tie in Wolverine do you know who would have access and know exactly where the white hot room is but wouldn't tell anybody Jonathan <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan the Wolverine would be the best Phoenix host so I am here for that if Echo ever has to give up the power let's give it to Jonathan <laughs> yeah let's have a Phoenix Force 5 but give it up to uh, all the animals where's the the second project <laughs> wait the pet the pet avengers but they're also phoenixes yes yeah, why not the adversary i found was actually a very fascinating villain in its motives its beliefs and how it acted uh, i actually really was intrigued by the use of this villain that seemed so powerful but didn't its power felt understated or not as pronounced in panel as opposed to characters understanding exactly what the adversary could do how did you guys feel about the different kind of relationship that all three characters had with the adversary that all kind of coalesced into this final battle where maya said you are nothing you are no more i am destroying and dismantling you piece by piece you cannot reform goodbye and i said good day sir i again i love the adversary as kind of like a recurring villain forge because it's it's just been this open arc for such a long time i believe there was a a great arc in the volume one wolverine series where you see forge in like the 2020s still fighting the adversary and like a quick jump to the future or something like that i believe that maya's stance of wiping the adversary or like undermining the adversary undoing the adversary with the power of the phoenix is a testament to the kind of clarity that she gains by facing the adversary you know as a as a a cluder as a trickster as someone who tries to manipulate reality you know you have to be connected to your power sources you have to be seeing clearly in order to see through that river is someone who who couldn't see clearly when he encountered the adversary he was clouded with grief and sorrow and the adversary takes advantage of those things you know forge too in his sort of grief and sorrow creates the conditions by which the adversary can almost end the world during fall of the mutants and so maya you know when she when she connects with her feelings of loss and her feelings of well who am i and then looks inward and sees that you know i am my ancestors wildest dreams you know she finds that clarity and she finds the power to sort of undo this this primordial trickster yeah i thought it was a great moment of growth and i thought it was a really a, a great crystallization of the narrative arc of the story what i've come to love about this version of the adversary that rebecca Horse has put out there is it really calls back to the adversary's first introduction into comics which was adversary for Sophia and x-men 188 but you know went through that fall of the mutant arc and at that point adversary was a big enough threat that even roma couldn't stop the adversary fully on her own so like that adversary definitely would be a match somebody to take on to to be able to take on the phoenix um, i think so 
subsequent adversary stories have sort of diluted the character having the adversary you know only kind of come back to pick on forge and to come through and try to cover his mind at one point all gets really messy with those stories but i think i got a little too bogged in the details like hey how how could adversary like just try to take over forge's mind and you know like blah 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 and i i think i kind of lost the fact that rebecca's really trying to inset adversary back up as that big major powerful force you know maybe the adversary doesn't need to come back every now and then because i think it's a little overdone but i think this story was a really good story to give the adversary his power level back that he was originally introduced as instead of just somebody who's going to try to take over forge's mind something you said earlier in the episode nathan is that when forge was first introduced i was like why is forge just being a dick forge is just being mean and rude and like i get it phoenix force uh, destruction yada 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 but like he was just being he was honestly just being an asshole and then and then we get like a really great connection and reasoning for forge being in this issue and like a really strong foundation for and i was like oh okay i see i get this and i understand where rebecca's going here one thing that i loved that happened throughout this is that even though it was river's words that were the ones to get to maya maya was the one who saved herself and i think that's a constant characterization of maya that i've seen throughout multiple different medias is that she not only has a kick-ass take no prisoners kind of a vibe and attitude but i feel like she often is able to understand that she can rely on herself while accepting help where she's the one who often will save herself from things it was a really just beautiful interesting detail where maya kind of understood her role as the phoenix host and her role for the phoenix for her ancestors and her you know ancestral duty for this cosmic being i really loved that moment of her kind of in the background you hear queens breaking free <laughs> can we talk about forge's anti-adversary gun for a second yes. I love that anti whatever gun he needs at the moment well i mean it's so again like if you think of this as being you know a moment that forge has been, that it's been like leading up for forge in his life a really important of course he's got like in the back of his head he's like yeah i've got plans for an anti-adversary gun i've been working on this for like my for like 30 years i got this i was just so satisfied seeing forge close the adversary arc finally and i guess it's not like it's something that he's not really bogged down emotionally by in other books so much like you don't see him being like oh god the adversary in x-force but it's nice to it's nice to find a writer who can thread that loop who can who can pull on that thread from so long ago and say you know i see this and i see that this is still kind of dangling here and i would like finish this up with this like really cool story and that it's not even forged that does it but he's just he's like on the support team that undoes the adversary is also really good because we're not always all the heroes in the story and that forge you know thought that this focus was all about him but ultimately ended up being about Maya and her power and her ability to undo the adversary I thought that that was really a great twist you know that kind of like goes into what my original problem with the story was but it's something that the writer clearly had a real vision to take that story back was like the first few issues it didn't seem like Echo had much agency it didn't seem like she was driving the story it felt like others were driving the story around her and I, and I mm-hmm. get now with this issue that the point of having her go through all of that crisis of the crisis of confidence and you know just the phoenix force throwing her in doubt i get why that was in place when i first was reading those first few issues i was like wait but this is not echo like she doesn't you know she's she's fucking take charge she's not gonna like just let stuff happen around her but obviously that was the whole point of the story is she had to get her power back but i i loved how even though you know like forge was able to deal those blows you know it was maya taking charge becoming more of one with the phoenix being able to access the power fully that it was her who was able to really drive the story 
forward. I loved seeing her take that power, that agency back, because I, that, that was my big problem with Dory at first. But I like how the writer explained why she was going through that. And it, it just all worked in the end. It was definitely a case of the ends justifying the means. And I really appreciate that we can look back and understand that the entire picture helps, you know, the with the individual strokes. We are able to go back and appreciate earlier issues because it all reads much better when you're able to see everything and all of the key story elements playing out. One of the really great moments that I loved is the adversary kind of trying to play some mind tricks, some mind fuckery going on, and having a River see his mother and having Forge see Storm. So I haven't gotten to the point in comics where Storm and Forge dated, but I would love to know your opinions on this. Ooh, well, that Forge it, is not over her. Was it dating? Really? I'm not really sure. I mean, well, I guess okay. they kind of dated the 90s, but in, in the 80s, it was not really dating. No, in the 80s, it wasn't. But you got to remember, like, when Blue Team Gold Team happened, right? So, like, at one point, Forge actually asked Storm to marry him, and mm-hmm. Storm was, like, literally this close to saying yes before he's like, you know what? You're never going to say yes. You're never going to leave the team. You know, I'm going to go do my own thing. And that's oh, yeah. Doing. And then she collapses and was like, I yeah. was going to say, I, yeah. I did not like oh. that moment for Storm. I don't think that, I did not feel like that was a very Storm moment to be, to be frank, because I don't think Storm would collapse over any, but. There we go. I thought you were Jake. <laughs> I honestly, in reading that, and they're reading their initial relationship now, see them as trauma bonded. You know, Forge is someone who has suffered horrific injury. Storm is someone who suffered horrific injury at Forge's hands, although she doesn't know that initially. You know, he takes her in. He tries to help her recover. They start to form a romantic relationship, and that's put in initial jeopardy when she finds out that Forge is the person who built the gun that took her powers. Because that's really wh- where they come together. Storm loses her powers because Forge creates this power-taking gun that we've seen again recently in Inferno, and Storm is initially, like, really messed up by it. That's what causes her to go on her her walkabout. That's when she comes back and takes leadership of the X-Men. It's a, it's a real catalyst for her growth, and, you know, part of that was having this, like, really messy relationship with Forge, which comes back around during Fall of the Mutants, where the adversary sends Forge and Storm to an alternate Earth where they're the only two humans, and is like, be fruitful and multiply. And both of them are like, no, 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 no. They have a very, very complicated history at this point. And I think to say that Forge is not over her, and especially that particular incarnation of her from when he first met her, I think is reasonable. Yeah, and, and it's been revisited, the idea of Forge still holding a candle for Storm in several arcs, like even leading up to her marriage to the Black Panther. Like, it's, it's all been visited, and I, I think, like you said, Jake, I think Forge and Storm are trauma-bonded like that. They did spend, like, I think it was about a year they spent in that alter- mm-hmm. alternate parallel earth obviously sometimes you can you know bond with somebody on a on a deep level and you're always going to love them to death even if it doesn't like pan out if it doesn't work you're always going to love that person still and have some sort of feeling and you got to work through those feelings and we got to remember marvel time for us it's been like 10 15 years but for <laughs> for a forge it's probably maybe been like a year or six months based on the marvel sliding time scale so he's still kind of trying to figure it out <laughs> such a toxic relationship he, you know, created the gun that she was shot with and then tried to cover that up while he helped her. She stabbed him in the chest, like, full on with a knife, to, and, which is which is what, you know, p- propelled them into another world. But, like, they are... Wolverine can still have relationships. He tries to stab people with the knives all the time. <laughs> well, yes, and I think Wolverine has some, some toxicity in his romantic relationships, to say the least. <laughs> a lot. I've always read that as, these are two people who love each other, but are incredibly bad for each other. You know, they're, yep. they're 
bond was created in i was gonna say in in adversary but like yeah like through the through adversarial relationship through violence and that's kind of always going to be a piece of it so if anybody ever asked me what the x-men is like i am going to tell them it is a soap opera because this is just the plot of a soap opera and i learned the the x-men has never been about superheroes the x-men has always been a soap opera about love triangle it really is just a written soap opera where you just throw superheroes in every now and then it is it is and it's like wrestling and like the same things go and play there like those stories are so so soap opera-y with uh good fight scenes and good action it's like comic books too it's here right so there's a theme that I've been thinking about, and it's this idea that, you know, the stronger the relationships one has to the people around them, to the to the family around them, to the, their sense of history and agency and context, the more balanced one is with their, you know, internally balanced a person is. And I say this because I think of Jean Grey as the Phoenix, and I think of Rachel Summers as the Phoenix. And I think about, you know, when Jean became the Dark Phoenix, she was rejected by her parents uh, and, and ultimately redeemed by her love for scott summers uh, which is what allowed her to make that self-sacrifice it was that connection to another person that allowed her to to restabilize enough so that she could make i guess the right choice rachel she notes two things one that in her timeline gene's parents didn't reject her they embraced her and and she was able to come back being dark phoenix and rachel herself had all of her like foundational core connections just eliminated before taking over phoenix and really struggled internally for a while especially when she was first she first appeared in the 616 timeline to find that power to balance it to access it before she like really truly connected with it took on beyonder maya is someone who at the beginning of this arc doesn't really have a strong sense of that connectivity she lost her father she was i think was she raised by the kingpin is that right oh so she was taken okay. under his wing after a certain point okay and all of her familial relationships were ultimately like taken from her before she before she took the phoenix and in this story she is she's actively exploring that background she's actively connecting to that background she meets her mother she sees her father she sees all of these ancestors and sees that like these are people who came before her who are very strong and that she is in line with these people and shares strength with these people i think there's something really interesting about the idea that having that sort of like holistic sense of balance you know spiritually ancestrally emotionally is what lets one really balance great powers like the phoenix like dark phoenix is the result of of some severe emotional imbalance some severe internal turmoil but being able to hold the phoenix and say like i'm still maya i'm not just a vessel is indicative to me of a serious a seriously balanced person i guess and so i'm very curious about you know what writer might take that up and and bring her to gene or bring her to rachel and you know have her show this off and have see what kind of contention comes out of that because i really i think maya has the best hold on the phoenix force right now of any of the hosts that we've seen i did not think that at the beginning of this mini but i think that now and so I'm really excited to see what kinds of interactions come up with other hosts. I love your line of thinking, Jake. <laughs> I, I gotta say, for my money, that probably the most stable overall long-term host of the Phoenix has to have been Rachel. I, I think that, you know, there might be some inherent reasons why, like, Rachel might have been more in tune with it. I, because I, I really think instead of being Jean Grey's daughter, Rachel was actually the Phoenix Force's daughter herself. So I think, like, she's created of the Phoenix in some ways. She 
really was able to long-term control that. And I think the Phoenix Force 2 also tried to suppress some of her memories because there was so much trauma in there. But I do think, like, Rachel's probably overall, at least throughout that whole Excalibur run, was the most in tune with Phoenix overall. She never really was threatened to go dark, and it was never really something that she worried about. But that was also before most writers have used the dark aspect of it. I do love how she was able to come back from this. And there's something I really love about, like, in issue three especially, how they showed Maya's ancestor as a host of the Phoenix Force. And I loved seeing somebody who wasn't a white redheaded woman be able Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. be the Phoenix host. You know, obviously we've got it, you know, Phoenix 5, you know, but they were were all white characters. I love seeing Mm -hmm. somebody who wasn't a white character historically be able to access the power of the Phoenix and the fact that her ancestor was so fucking in tune with the Force and was like, you know, girl, what are you doing? Like, you can bring the dead back. Like, why are you even worried about this? So I I loved that. did love giving Maya an ancestral reason to actually have the Phoenix Force choose her because, you know, obviously the Phoenix was like, oh, cool, I know you too. But yeah, that's pretty much what I'm thinking of that. Absolutely. Number one, yes, I would love Maya to interact with other hosts. You know, I think Jean and Rachel, I think, should be the priority because those, I think, are the hosts that are the most fully and directly tied with the Phoenix Force. Would it be funny to see how Maya interacts with Quentin Choir? Sure. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) I would actually, I would love to see like a one shot or like a free comic book day mini. I'd love to see Maya interact with the Phoenix Force for Phoenix host from Guardians of the Galaxy that the early 90s one like oh uh, well he's from the 30th century so like it's the white hot one. room so like it all <laughs> time listen time's an illusion time's not real they can put anybody any character they want anywhere really the series I'm about to mention clearly has influenced everything that way I think about and I didn't even realize but one thing I love in the Heroes Reborn run is I loved Maya's interactions with the star brand where two cosmic entities came together so I would also love more interaction with other uh, celestial and or beings like that, mm. where the Phoenix is interacting with things yeah. that are of other similarities and powers. Something you brought up, Jake. So at the time of this recording, I just watched Encanto for the first time. Oh, yeah two major themes of that movie that it talks about and explores are about generational trauma and how that affects the younger generations, as well as family burdens and expectations placed on younger generations to uphold certain traditions of what to do. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of similarities in the themes of Encanto, as well as what's going on through this Maya story. Because Maya didn't choose to be part of this ancestral line. She didn't choose to be the host of the Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And it can place a lot of undue pressure and burden to be this perfect being to be able to not only control this phoenix force but to do good with it to be a hero to save the world whenever wherever it needs to be and i really love those themes being explored here and i really love the ideas that of maya being able to recognize her own internal strength and her own ability to recognize no this is what i want to do this is what i'm meant to do i am the phoenix this is my family's gift and like being able able to fully come into her own and realization of this is this is what she was missing is that realization that she's had this power and she's had this ability to control the phoenix force the entire time and that this has been in her family for so long that others have done before why can't she yeah i mean that that really resonates i i was reading rebecca's sign off note at the end of issue five and she goes ahead and names imposter syndrome as one of the themes that she really wanted to explore in this i think you really touched on that well jonah she goes into this not really 
like the first issue she's not really herself she's like really aggressive she's using the the powers out of control around her she's using it all fiery when there's you know fire is just the beginning of the phoenix force you know it's it's almost as if she thinks this is what someone is supposed to do with the phoenix and she's trying to overcompensate and by the end she has this really clear sense of you know i am not just a vessel here you know i am not someone supposed to be phoenix i am me and i have this power and this power is part of me and i am not part of and there's just such a clear a much clearer sense of her values shining through and and, and who she is shining through rather than this kind of the the model that she seems in right at the beginning of like do i go into this burning building do i you know kill these criminals do i you know burn this person you know what is a phoenix to do counterpoint that with you know i am going to use my powers to resurrect you river but you need to like i'm i can only facilitate the process like you need to be the one who walks through it feels like she finds she's found her inner compass again by the end of the series where she seems to have had lost it at the beginning how does everybody feel about the end of this like like forge you know talking to maya about how you know he's gonna come to the island and learn how to use the phoenix a little and like the setup of river and maya maybe starting a little something something at the end there i love that last panel (laughs) so beautifully drawn just them sitting there having coffee in front of the destroyed house as long as this doesn't turn out like the last person they invited Kakawa to utilize and learn about their powers (laughs) i'm completely fine with that. I don't love trauma bond relationships because I think it's it's a little too easy. I like their dynamic, but I would love to see them be just friends and find other people in in healthier contexts. I like that Maya said, you know, I, I'll come to the island, but I don't really, I don't, I don't think I need to learn anything. I'm just gonna kind of come and see you and say hey. I like that. That's how she was left feeling. She was like, no, I think I've got this, but I'm still gonna like, we can still be pals and chill. Oh, absolutely, uncanny duo that Forge is almost turning into Wolverine a little bit, and then he's appearing everywhere. <laughs> Because he's over in X-Force, he's over in Secret X-Men, he's over here making friends with Maya. There's a, he's, mark my words, Forge will be the new Wolverine. That's absolutely not true. Forge will not be the new Wolverine. That's a big, big, big prediction. Um, And I am not Destiny, so I can't see the future. Is there? <laughs> I've got to learn to trust reading a story all the way from front to beginning to see before I pass a judgment on it. Because after issue two, I was like, what the fuck is? this but like it consistently made more sense as the story went on um if you haven't read this and you are looking to read this and you're listening right now i would just say wait till it's on trade or get the whole series and read it together sitting it sitting down and reading it in one read is gonna read so much better and like i don't think i gushed enough about the art in this whole series this art in the series was fucking beautiful the colors were on point and like the details just in the line work from everything down to forge's fringe to like that beautiful broken hound house like you know everything was really on point i want to echo what you said nathan about reading it through start to finish because i think that is the best way to really get the story there was one throwaway line about how the phoenix always returns to the earth that i'd love to see unpacked a little bit more because i've always wondered why it is the phoenix is always coming back to the earth if the earth is just like one of many planets like i would love to see that story i would love to see maya's next steps sort of address that i am so much more excited for what's coming 
coming next for these characters than I thought I would be at the beginning. So I'm I'm just I'm thrilled for this, and I I hope anyone who reads it will be as thrilled. Oh, absolutely, and especially if you were a fan of Alakwa Cox's performance in Hawkeye, we mm-hmm. do know that Echo will be getting her own TV show, as you know, doubly mentioned in this beautiful letter from Rebecca in her like the sign off page. If you are looking for something like you did enjoy that character and you want to know more about them, I think this is a great issue to read to help get you to understand where the character is currently at, especially ahead of the TV show that will be coming out within the future. Mm-hmm.